I'm in a, I'm in I'm in a bit of a dilemma. I need your oh, no. I need your I need your pastoral advice. Ooh, I am very pastoral. And I mean studying is life right now. Um I'm trying to decide here. So my day of rest is Mondays. Right? Yes. I enjoy studying. It's actually a lot of fun. But there's the other part of me that says you should take a day off from studying too. Interesting. And it's hard. I don't feel this need to have to work on the Mondays. At the same time, I enjoy it. And the more I get in, the more... It, I mean, this it, it really does excite me. But I'm also... I think there can be a danger sometimes where the brain can be overtaxed. And it's good. But then I don't know what to do with my day of rest. Interesting. So here's the thing. I'm bad at leisure, I, I, in other words. Yes. In one sense, uh, studying is a leisure time activity. Mm -hmm. It is because um, you have leisure that you can study, and that's a beautiful thing. At the same time, we have to acknowledge um, the fact that in our modern times, academic work has become a kind of work. Right. Um, where People calls it intellectual work. Exactly. So there's that. And so maybe you could spend those days just reading something different, but at the same time, your crazy brain might turn that into academic work, right? Yep. And I would also say just doing something mindless or something to distract you, like you, the subconscious works on stuff even when we're, we're not. We've mm -hmm. all experienced that either through preaching, learning, reading, like so. Um, I think what you should do uh, is you should uh, learn how to play Destiny 2 so you can join my Catholic clan and we can shoot aliens together. Wouldn't that be fun? No. Oh. Well, that's that's the best advice I can give you. Read some comic books. Do I, that. I, I have no... I, I got rid of my PS4 last year. Have you read Batman Year One? Yep. Okay. Um, I, I, I mean, listen, I have a whole bookshelf of literature here, but... I and I mean I I'm trying to, I got to get better about that I'm just I don't know I, I at the same time it's like if I give four hours to it on a Monday then it gives me time to it, it just make sure that it's yeah I mean I'm okay like if there's a day I need to take a break from studying I'll take it it's not the end of the world but wow see this is the thing that always happens when people ask for pastoral advice they don't actually want advice and they won't actually listen to you no. they just want to tell you about their problems so that's tell, that's I, tell this is normal for me that's all, I'm, that's all I'm doing I'm just telling about my problem <laughs> I, I, I don't know if there I don't know there is a solution it's just I give a good chunk of time to it every day and mm -hmm. so is that healthy or not I don't know Am I, I, am I, I guess you, I think I, honestly at the heart of it is am I am I respecting God's sense of the Sabbath mm. by doing studies on a Monday? I think you should uh, take some time to ponder what would be a delightful and wholesome distraction for you for a few hours on Monday. But I I'm really bad at that stuff. I don't like distractions. Actually, well, here's the thing. Like most things that I would do to distract me, I've eliminated from my life because they become too much a distraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have almost no screen time in my life. Like I'm looking, I'm like, I'm at my computer screen for two hours today with this. That's a lot for me. You should take up painting. You should watch. I'm you should lefty. watch um, the the Bob Bob Ross. No, yeah, Bob Ross stuff, and like learn how to paint. But that involves screens. That would be well. Okay, screens are you bad could, for my ADHD. Okay, well then just, just you know, be free. Be free to just get some finger paints and just go to town 
and just it, it it don't worry i'm being i'm being half serious here like it's something tactile it's something where you can't be good or bad at it because it's finger painting and it'll just get your mind off stuff just kind of just you know go outside and feel some grass go for a hike live laugh love you know that's that's really what you need to do Welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. <laughs> and I am going to talk a little about Destiny 2, the video game where I shoot aliens. Because um, it made me realize, uh, you know, I am 32 years old. And for many of the listeners, I'm just a baby. I'm just a cute little baby priest at 32 years old. But I am feeling a little bit older. Not in a negative way, just that there are generations that are younger than me and different than me. And uh, I'm beginning to appreciate that more. So the other night, I was playing with some of the uh, younger members that are in their you know 20s on Destiny. And just the, the silliness, the energy they were bringing to the chat as we were shooting aliens was just very refreshing to me. Uh, there's something good about being with younger people uh, in different generations. <clears throat> it, it was just refreshing, uh, refreshing and enlivening. And I have my friends who are my age, which is also very good, but also I deal with a lot of people who are older. And a lot of times that's lovely as well. Mm -hmm. But there's something just good about being around. Uh, I, this is why I feel old. There's something good to be, about being around the young people. And uh, I am glad that I have enough talent to shoot aliens fairly well, where I can engage in this activity and talk to these people who are all delightfully faithful Catholics, normal human down to earth. Uh, and just to, uh, uh, and I, I imagine it's at least, it's interesting because there's like nine priests who are part of our clan. Uh, and so there's something just very communal, Catholic, human about mm -hmm. that. Uh, so uh, the militia they, immaculata. Like all of the U.S. or something like that? Was that? Uh, yeah. The US? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the ones I know. Uh, yeah. They, they're all U.S. Um, I think, I don't know if they go for, uh, yeah, we got some Californians. So that makes some of the playtime difficult too. Um, but yeah, it's just Time good. Zones, so, man. you know. Yeah. Uh, shout out to uh, to Spider DJ Telesto Mint Muscle. Uh, I won't give out your real names because that's that's terrible. Uh, to the real Dave and everybody on my clan, you guys are wonderful, and it's a good way just to kind of relax and shoot some aliens. That's what I do. That's why I suggested Father Harrison do, but he's he's too lame to play video games like the cool kids. So there you go. I never claimed to be cool. You, you 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 are cool in your own way, Harrison, because the, the key to being cool is just to be yourself. Amen. 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 The best way to become yourself is to enter your vocation, which we're going to talk about in the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas' Summary of Theology. The Summa Tweetologica is our summary of things we found interesting on Twitter. And this first one comes from Father Ryan Hildebrand at Father Hildebrand. After confirmation mass this past Sunday, the bishop handed off to me some of the letters that our kids wrote him. He said, keep your eye on the eyes on these kids. They sound like they have they might have a vocation. And he has a little gif of Will Ferrell going yes and punching things and everything. And I love that tweet because 
First, how awesome is it that the bishop cares? He actually read the letters. He read not only did he read letters, but that he saw yeah. in some of them an authentic sense that there might be a, a deeper calling there. Then he's also then helping the pastor and be a father to call these things out and to, to you know pay attention and to help and, and guide. Um, just I was really I just thought like it was just a beautiful little moment of of. Um, priestly laity episcopal communion right where yeah. these kids have an openness to god um he he's listening to that openness as a bishop and the priest is eager and excited that the bishop's eager and excited and that there might be some kids in the parish who have a vocation and that he can encourage that it's just i don't know it was just like one of those tweets where like man we need more of that in the world in the church yeah we need more stuff absolutely. like that absolutely Absolutely, because a lot of times, you know, in confirmation programs, and I don't think we do this on purpose or whatever, but it just it feels like we're putting kids through a lot of hoops. Yep. So just the idea that uh, there were kids who took this at least fairly seriously, um, that's encouraging as well. Um, and so, so that's very good. And yeah, it's just a moment of a lot of times as brother priests, or even if you are friends with your bishop, a lot of times the stuff you talk about is kind of complaining or like the business business of mm -hmm. the church but to connect on a spiritual level you know to have joy in your vocation um to be seeing fruits of that vocation and talking about that together that is delightful mm -hmm. yeah we need to do, so, we need to do yeah. more of that yeah i think that's good uh this tweet is from iowa catholic catholic spelled with a k also check him out on Twitter because he does amazing uh, reviews of frozen pizzas. Um, really, just the most in-depth reviews of frozen pizzas I've ever seen. But uh, he tweets, me, sitting in the 11th pew. I'm an 11th pew kind of guy. And I was thinking to myself, you know what? Back in the day when I was just a layperson, I was like a fifth pew kind of guy. Because mm -hmm. for me, it was like, you know, I, I wanted to say, I'm not afraid of going up close right but i'm not gonna go all the way up there because that's just obnoxious right you know I don't, i'm not a try hard but i'm good natured like mm -hmm. i want to be here i'm not afraid to sit near the front but i'm not gonna try to show off mm -hmm. so i'm really like a fifth fourth pew kind of guy mm -hmm. um 11th pew kind of guy what is 11th pew kind of guy maybe someone who's like i just want to be with the people i want to be in the center of things um, not to make me the center, but just to be close to that community. I, I just want to be mm -hmm. in the northern middle. Harrison, what kind of pew guy would you be? So it depends. So in seminary, we had our, our seminary chapel was a little oddly constructed in a sense. So like the fronter pews, like I think six or seven rows, were more curved in to give a sense of like um, a monastic community where we're facing each other. Not quite, but... Yeah, as you pray the and then the rest of the pews were just long, and so yeah. when the set, when we were in community together, we prayed. We all had to sit in those pews. I loved the back right pew on the aisle, on the left hand yeah. aisle near the. And what was near, what was good for you about the back right pew on the aisle? I was not a morning person back then, and so I could not slip in without notice, but that I could slip in without distracting people in their prayer and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I also found myself just less distracted there and everything. Um, so when I was in center of that, but when I was in the parish before that, oh yeah, I would probably be something similar to you. Like I liked kind of near the front, but not 
I'm not going to be showy about myself being up front. Um, there is something I've learned about like just being in the corner off to the side in the back or something like that. There is something kind of nice and quiet about that. Sure. But that's kind of where, yeah, those are kind of things I would be at. Um, but then the next question becomes, because we had another tree. I'm not, I'm not, I won't read the whole thing, but it's like, so if you're on an aisle in a parish, which if someone's coming in, there's like seats next to you. Do you shove over or do you stand up and let them in so you can keep your 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 end end uh, spot? I, it, for me, it depends on the pew. If it's a wooden pew, I'm a scoocher. Yeah, I'll scooch on over to the middle. I'll do. I'll just slide on down. One because that's fun. Uh, two because I don't want them to crawl over me or stand yeah. up. It's just to keep the traffic flowing. Exactly. I'm a scoocher. Yep. This is good, normal, and chill. Yes, this is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Because. Um, that does not happen a lot. I've even said it in my parish a few times at mass. Like, guys, if you see people walking in, you're sitting at the end, please slide over. Especially yeah. when there's families with kids. Like, come on. Like, it, 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 they're, they're, they're trying enough already. Like, just, just, just move over. I get it. There's something weirdly comforting about just sitting on the edge like that with that little armrest and everything. It's a mm-hmm. little extra comfort during mass. Yeah. But in the end, a seat's a seat. I mean, pews are kind of a bit of a Protestantism anyways. So, like, maybe we could just... So, reject modernity and go to the center of the pew. Beautiful. I will say one one quick story about yeah. uh, seminary and pews. So, it's going to be hard to describe and visualize, but the way our seminary was set up was that there were two sets of chairs facing each other. And so, they were facing each other toward the center of the room. In the center of the room on either sides was the altar on one side and the other side of the room was the ambo. Uh, what you need to know for this is that I picked the pew that was uh, the seat that was farther from the door because guys didn't want to sit there so I'll sit there to fill up you know our little chapel. That means for me to get to my spot I have to uh, go down this one row of pews go through the center aisle of the church if you will to go to my spot. That means that if I'm late I cannot sneak into mm-hmm. the chapel. I can't. Everyone's going to see me. And uh, so that would be my penance for myself, self-imposed penance. If I was ever late, so like everyone would be standing, it'd be the opening hymn. I'm walking through these row of pews, past the altar, all the way to my seat. And there was one time where I was running. I was basically running. I went to bow to the altar, but instead I kind of genuflected and then I tried to not genuflect. And I kind of did this barrel roll mm-hmm. um, through the center of the chapel to get to my pew. And uh, my brother <laughs> seminarians who are loving and forgiving uh, never let me forget that moment. So yeah. it can be, that was my self-imposed penance if I was ever late. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Seminary. I mean, you, and it was always funny. And yeah, when you're in seminary like those, like in our seminary, it was 630 mass. Mm. Oh, sorry, 6.30 morning prayer, then mass. And yeah, like guys come in. Like that's why I always shaved my head in seminary just because I didn't have yeah. to worry about wake, making my hair and doing my hair in the morning. Um, but guys would come in hair disheveled and, yeah. and all this stuff. <laughs> and, and they stayed up all night doing their papers and stuff like that. Yeah. And of course, after I left seminary, then they decided to have like once or twice a week mass in the evening. And I'm like, you jerks. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't do it when I was there. You had to wait till I left. Yep. But now, now I'm up earlier than I ever was in seminary so you know yeah. God has a sense of humor yes he does yeah I have no transition to the topic presbyteral exhortations 
And now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good, quite good. Indubitably. Mm -hmm. I bet they can't wait to learn. They're gonna learn so much. It's my favorite part. It's the best part. Yes, yes, quite. Yes, quite. Oh, I am, I'm sorry that you did not have a transition to the topic, but God is very merciful and good to us. And I'm sure that uh, we will have a great time talking about uh, Ratzinger and history and all kinds of wonderful things. Yes, yes, exactly. See, we were, we're doing recording back to back, so I don't know if people hate this or love it, but I love it. And Knowing so, our audience, half will hate, half will love. Exactly. <laughs> but all will subscribe. Thank you. That's right. <laughs> subscribe to our patreon what are we talking about today we're gonna talk so i've got as is often the case whatever i'm reading lately is the stuff that's going through my head and i've been so um my my thesis if those people don't know what my thesis is about i'll give a quick little overview because i think they'll give it I, I when i proposed my thesis to the school i'm in I proposed that we would I would look at the sacramental anthropology of Joseph Ratzinger, like how he understands anthropology through the notion of sacrament, which I'm still going to argue for. But I've taken, but everything, all the different stuff I was proposing to go into, I've just totally chucked. Um, and that's a good thing. That's usually a sign that research is happening and that you're coming to an understanding that you didn't have before. This is all good. And it was actually in course, it was actually reading uh, a few months ago, I was reading a lot of Tracy Roll and stuff on Ratzinger just to give a nice little overview of some stuff. And to, I was, as I was coming out of my depressive state at the time um, from lockdowns, I, uh, I got, uh, I needed to get my head back in the game, all that fun stuff. And she quotes this little quote from him like 10 times. And I joked with her, I said, you know, it's like a Catholic, it's like a, a theological drinking game with you. It's like every time you, you say this quote, um, I got to take a, a drink of something. Um, but he has this line that I, I can't find the exact page actually at the moment, but um, he has this line where he says, the biggest problem today in philosophy and theology is the mediation of history in the realm of ontology. Very abstract, I know, but it's actually become the center of my thesis now, that line, to see if he answers the problem. I think he does. I'm not going to give you the answer why I think he does. And I know probably half of you are like, what the heck does that sentence mean? What is even the problem that he's answering? What is the relationship between the universal and the particular, the unchanging and the changing? Is there, these are perennial philosophical problems that Aristotle brings in, Plato. Uh, it was a massive, like when Aristotle was reinserted into the West in the Middle Ages, the problem of universals was the problem. The problem, right? So, uh, so right now I'm working on, so the chapter is, or the, the, the thesis is you got your introduction, then I'm taking three chapters, one on each notion of that sentence. So one on history, one on ontology, metaphysics, and one on mediation. Then I'm going to talk about anthropology as the synthesis of these three notions, and then bring in sacramentality at the end, which, yeah, I'm just going to say that for now, because it's just, I don't know, I think it's fun what's going to happen at the end, but I got to make sure it's actually going to happen and work. Okay. Um, and then each chapter builds on the synthesis of the previous one, and that we start to show a disjunct and central themes of these ideas if Christ isn't at the center of them. So I'm looking, I'm learning a lot about history right now. Okay. And it's 
history as a theological and philosophical problem, not history as in the study of things that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Okay. And as I've been reading this, it's like my brain has been like exploding constantly. <laughs> in a good messy. way. It's a good way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing. Um, because it's broken open a whole bunch of stuff I never really saw before. So I reread for like the fifth time. And finally, I think I got to the heart of it. His habilitation thesis on Bonaventure's theology of history. And it got, it got me going on some stuff. And I was just actually reading some stuff in Principles of Catholic Theology the other day where he's talking about the notion of salvation history, right? And here's, here's, here's part of the problem that he just, just as a really cool line. He says, history always becomes problematical for us when it occurs in a particular historical, sorry, yeah, yeah, when it occurs in a particular historical con uh, configuration. When th that happens, we become conscious of, conscious of the distance or indeed the contradiction between history and being, between our historical and our ontological nature. We must search again for the union between our being and history, either by invalidating history as it has been up to the present, or by conceiving it anew from its roots. In saying this, we have discovered in essence where the problem of salvation history begins, as well as the basis of its presence, present relevance. Oh, Translate such, that. Oh my gosh, dude, there's so much there. It's like, I, <laughs> I read this six months ago Yeah. and I reread it just the other day. I'm like, oh, there's so much here. Okay. Because I want to talk about, there's, there's, yeah, man, I, I forewarned Father Anthony beforehand. I said, I'm going to have to be careful. I'm going to try not get too much in the weeds, but I'm also very excited about this. And there's a lot of places it's going to go, but I, I will, don't worry, folks, I will land the plane. So history is always a problem when there's a crisis in a particular historical moment. So like you can think like something like World War II is a, yeah. or world, the world wars in general, or 1968. These are moments of historical problems, right? Uh, where the notion of history then becomes undermined or shaken. Um, we be, and through this problem, we start becoming conscious of the contradiction between history and being. And in other words, our, he says our historical and ontological nature. So what he means by this, ontological is like, what are you? I am, I'm a human being. Like, yeah. That is my nature, that mm -hmm. is what I am. That doesn't change. Your humanity, my humanity, that is human nature. Yeah. Um, and that's essential and that's unchanging. But I'm Harrison, you're Anthony, and that's different. We are different instantiations of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And, and so we are experiencing the unchanging humanness in the particular particularity of our own personhood, right? Okay. So, so we understand, I'm going to slow yeah. you down a little bit. So we understand uh, this kind of broader notion of humanity from the particulars of individual humans. Right. And it sounds like what he's saying is like in moments of historical uh, crisis, uh, what does it mean for me to be a human when there's a world war going on? Like, what does that change how I view myself or right. my reason for being? Yeah. Like, it makes us ask questions of ourselves. And where do we is come from and where are we going? Right? Ah, yes. So, this is the thing. History for him mediates being. Um, history is the mediating force of nature uh, because it's it's how we exist in time and place. Right? So, when this, when we become conscious of this, and so this is where he... This is where he goes. So I, and so how do we, so we, we're looking for that union again between what, who we 
who we are in our existence and who we are in our nature. Um, either by invalidating history as it has been up to the present. So in other words, saying everything that's come before us is meaningless. Revolution, right? An attempt to destroy. Actually, Nietzsche's trying to do this. Um, Nietzsche is trying, Nietzsche understand, and there's a reason, Nietzsche understands that the whole notion of history and being has been so transformed by Christianity that the only way to undermine Christianity is to make it forgotten from human consciousness, which means you have to destroy everything that's Christian. Historically, existentially, um, in memory, in culture, everything has to be destroyed in order to reject, in order to develop a new way to be man. It was very radical when you start to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so can yeah. I try to give an example to see yep. like about this drawing? So painting with broad strokes, not meant to offend anyone. This is the first thing that popped in my head. Uh, after the two world wars, you have the boomer generation. And after all the chaos and upheaval, there's this desire for revolution, that we will be the saving generation, that we will liberate sexuality, that we will cast aside all the traditions that brought us to world wars. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's a, an idea of like destroying our understanding of that's history, right. creating something new, revolution. And, and, and it's also very Marxist in that Marx, Marx's notion of, of man and nature is that man experiences history as an alienation. And so man's being is actually not found yet. It's only in the future. It still has to be constructed. Uh, oh, so we've just been kind of wandering about so, right, so alienated. The past doesn't matter. Yeah. Only the future matters, right? Or mm. as, you, as he goes in with the other one here, um, or by conceiving... Uh, history anew from its roots or the future doesn't matter only the past does right which can come forms come out in certain forms of traditionalism for example or um, it can come out in forms of like like actually historical critical method is this if the christ of faith and the christ of history are separated then we have to find the christ of faith which means we have to get rid of we have to use a method to rediscover the real christian roots of what it who is this real person of jesus that christianity is based on and so we have to go back to the roots because our identity is actually only found in the past. Okay. okay. Another Both controversial th- example. So basically, uh, rad trads look around and say, hey, the church is a big mess. Yeah. Let's go back to when it was perfect. Yep. The 1950s where everything was perfect. Yeah. Out of which all these revolutionaries of 1968 grew up in. Well, yeah, of course. We know that because we're, we're smart. <laughs> yes. <Anyways. laughs> no, exactly. No, this is it. So yeah. in all this, I know, okay, I, I, that was a little in the weeds and I can't help no, myself. Um, but in all this, what Ratzinger has helped me and, and also, actually Joseph Pieper has this little book called The End of Time, uh, a philosophical investigation or, or an investigation to the philosophy of history or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So Ratzinger's helped me understand this and especially Ratzinger's investigation into Bonaventure. Our whole notion of history in modernity is rooted in Christianity. Okay, so I'm going to give a little historical overview here. Yeah. Um, Printing a bit with broad strokes. Aristotelians, please don't hate me for what I'm about to say. But, well, I mean, so, okay. Uh, great. The, the a, a, a definition of history that really took over in the West for a long time is Aristotle's. It's in his book on poetics, where he says that uh, poetics or poetry is actually more philosophical than um, history because history only deals with the past and the particulars. So for, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for this, but for, for, for Aristotle, um, because knowledge is only after universals, history is not really knowledge. And so therefore it's not really philosophy. It's not really a philosophy. 
it's only facts x happened you can't know the causes of y or anything because it's an act of freedom which you can't observe and so when you know joe kills jane or whatever um you might know that effect in there but it's really there's no real knowledge all you're knowing is cause and effect in particulars you're not knowing universals anymore so for for aristotle history is actually irrational so because it's uh, cyclical right yeah okay yeah so let's say napoleon becomes dictator of france mm -hmm. we can't really know why that happened what were the forces that happened what we can learn from right. that today all we know is that this is a thing that happened right yes and so um yes exactly and that's well this is and this is aristotle's notion of history okay this yeah. is not uh, this is not the christian notion it's actually not even really the modern notion anymore um, so that's that's Aristotle's notion of history. It actually has a, a great role to play in, in the development of reason in the West and Christianity. So they have Augustans. And now this part I have not super researched, so please don't hate me, any Augustan scholars out there, if I screw this up. But essentially for Augustan, history is meaningless up until the time of the church. Mm. So he has a kind of two-sword or a two-vision thing of it where pagan history, really in the end, it's actually now meaningless because of Christianity, and so we don't need to know it. So he has a bit of an Aristotelian view there, but not completely. He now sees because God has entered time, reason has entered history, there has to be some sort of reasonableness to time and history. And so the age of the church is the only time. This actually, and it's Augustine's view in the, in, in, in the West that really takes hold. Um, and so then you have Bonaventure, and I, I'm, I'm not going to mention Aquinas right now, not because I don't want to, but because I haven't looked into him yet. He's on my to-do list. But Bonaventure's is really interesting. And this is, this is where it really helped me see, because like, I think Bonaventure is actually the great synthesis of the Christian notion of history, at least how Ratzinger presents him. And this is going to have some implications to how we understand the end of time and eschatology and the final judgment and all this stuff. Because this is, this is stuff that gets twisted today. And I think too many Catholics are acting out of bad notions of history. Um, so for Bonaventure, there is a logos to history. There is a reason behind all historical events. Mm -hmm. Because God enters time, and he, for him, Jesus is kind of the geometric solution through the cross. Because So he can enter into this kind of pagan circular time, but break it open through the cross. And it's just it's really cool. Like the way he plays with math, I'm like, yeah, man, do it. This is awesome, right? Um, <laughs> so so if there's a logos though, and because of the notion of creation out of nothing, which Aristotle didn't have, right? So there has right. to be the notion of bringing a beginning to history. Aristotle never had this. Time is eternal for him. It just keeps on yeah. going. Well, for the Christian, no, time has a beginning. Mm -hmm. And it thus has an end, mm -hmm. right? Well, now that creates a linear, linear, linear nature to history that we didn't have before, which then helps us to understand scripture about type fulfillment. This is actually where it's all rooted in. And now the events of scripture are meant to be interpretive of the moments we're in right now, not as a future telling per se. It, it can sometimes tell the future, but not in the sense that we often like to think about it today, where you get all these little prophecies about the end times or whatever. And then it's like, no, that's actually not it. It's meant to give hints that you'll only notice in the day of, but it'll never give you a full picture. You cannot know the day or the, nor the hour, but we are moving towards an end, but that this end is not just in the future temporally, 
but it's actually more um, transcendent because Jesus is the eschatological event. He's both the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega incarnate in time. And so our future is not in the progress of history. Our future is eternal. Okay, I'm going to get stabbed yeah. at this. Okay. All right. So the way we read scripture tells us not only of, like you said, like hints of what's going to happen at the historical end that right. we'll recognize it when it's happening, but it doesn't necessarily give us like a timeline. Right. And we've, you know, this has been proven over and over again as Christians and other people have tried to like pin down time or done like weird math. Yep. The only good weird math in Christianity is what the fathers in Bonaventure did. That's fun, good, weird math. Yep. When you try to calculate exactly when the end time's going to happen, bad math. Okay. So the scriptures oh, I, I have a thought. There's the, the linear nature of time, mm -hmm. but there's also the transcendent nature of the time that we're in now. I'm trying to clarify. So are you trying to say that we have linear time, but that eternal time is always coming into touch with linear? Yes. 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 Exactly. Right. But I'm trying to say that in a way that makes more sense. Um, like The vertical we... and the horizontal are always touching now. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of you, but I think the way to, a concrete way to get to this is how we understand that we are, this is the end of time now. Yeah. So that, that and that's Augustine's notion. Okay. Yeah. That's Augustine's notion. Essentially the church, the time of the church is the last age. Okay. Yes. Bonaventure is like freaking interesting in so many ways yeah. with this because he takes a little Augustine, he takes a little Joachim, but does his own thing. And yeah. actually, I from what I've read, I'm like this is this is this is grossly ignored in mm. the development of doctrine, um, and the Bonaventurian uh, tradition that he's given us needs to be listened to more theologically because there's a lot going on here. Um, but yes, yeah, so because of the incarnation, his time. So when Christ, when when the Word becomes flesh, eternity enters into time in a permanent way, because. Mm -hmm. The incarnation hasn't ended. Christ is still human. Right. Right. Yeah. Created nature is now in heaven. And through that, heaven is now made present on earth. Hmm. And guess what? What 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 uh what group of people would do this? Would have this? Would have what? This this unity between time and eternity. The church. Yeah. Yeah. The church. Yeah. 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 The church. The church I was, is, I was sorry. going with the sacraments, like no, no, eternity no. enter into creation. No, no, is no, no. The sacrament. church is the place of history. Yes. Okay. Ah, gotcha. The, mm -hmm. And history is the place where eternity makes itself known to the world. So the church becomes the abiding presence of Christ to the world, becomes its sacrament of salvation. Mm. Um, and so the church, and so there is a, there is always going to be a progress, right? Um, there has to be a progress because there is also, because like the end of time is not just a, transcendental moment when you die or anything like that it's also something that happens in history and so yeah. we are progressing to this this is why like so bonaventure just so just as thomas 
structures his summa with the exitus reditus, right? From the exit to the return. Um, Bonaventure uses a little bit of a different word. It comes from pseudodionysius, right? Egressus and regressus, right? From coming out, from going in. And that's the history. History. And then it's through this that it, because Christ comes in, it's now lifted into the eternal, the eternal circle of the eternal time. Is now, it's, like, it's just really cool stuff, man. Um, but anyways, what I'm trying to get at here with all this is that with Bonaventure's view of history, eschatology, so like, because Joachim of Fiore is saying there's actually going to be a third covenant not just, the, not just a new covenant in Christ, but that there's going to be a new age where there's going to be from, uh, through a seraph, seraphic uh, revelation, the age of the Holy Spirit. And mm-hmm. the reason Bonaventure is dealing with this is because a lot of Franciscans at the time read Fiore and thought that this was Francis. And okay, so yeah. he was bringing in the third age of the Spirit, the final real covenant, which abrogates the previous two. Mm. Right. Bonaventure's like, yeah, guys, that's not it. But <laughs> yeah. but also, Yoakum's not completely wrong. Mm-hmm. That there's this progress towards a final age. Um, and this is all Christian. So, like, this, so what I'm trying to get here is this. Notions of progress. Okay? That history has meaning. That we can study history and come to know things through history. These didn't exist without Christianity. Okay? Luther comes along darn that Luther again Luther comes along <laughs> and now removes the sacramentality of scripture as an abiding living word of revelation that we're for Bonaventure it's always a new revelation that we're there's there's seeds of wisdom in scripture that in one age might not be known but might be known in a future mm-hmm. right so that's through history right yeah. Luther's like nope scripture only tells us about who Jesus was mm-hmm it's not because he's trying to undermine the authority of the church to allow scripture to speak for Christ today. Right. So the reason why you need the church to interpret scripture is because it speaks to every age. Exactly. And how is it speaking? You need an authority to do that. And, and authority presence, is the Holy Spirit. And, and a historical presence. Yes. And a historical, like, lived presence. Yeah. Oh, I have other thoughts. I don't want to get gunked up. But then to have the idea of sola scriptura, to have the idea that everyone can interpret scripture correctly that means scripture has to become stale yes it has to become a document right. um and this is the weird irony of of this kind of christian thought is that while in one sense scripture is held up as the highest authority in their sense it's completely devoid of life yes in that and i'm sure a bunch of Protestants would disagree but hey we're two catholic priests and we're right, right and, about and, everything and, and, so well, and like, yeah it's like and I and I, I would be interested, and I would need to look into this. But like the way we understand Scripture, at least mm-hmm. I think as if you, especially when you read the church documents and everything, um, Scripture really is something living. Yes, it's not, but we don't approach it this way. We approach we actually honestly. It's why I try hard not to do like too many. Well, you know, back in Jewish times or whatever, because that's not the point of Scripture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's helpful and it has its place, but especially not in a homily, though I think. Um, um, it's Christ speaking to us today in a sacramental way. So mm-hmm. it's our job as priests to pray with that and to speak that to the people. Um, but Luther, by removing the abiding eternal presence, right? Eternal presence now is no longer something continuous, which gives that constant meaning, right? The universe is always now present in the particular through Christ, Right? 
and God in man, like this is, this is it. This is the solution. Jesus is the solution to the problem of the one and the many. Um, but Luther by exercising eternity as a real presence today in time in history now makes history something that is only referring to the past. Okay. This starts a whole chain of events in modernity where you see, and it, I would say for about 500, 400, 500 years, you have the notion that we have to look to the past to find our identity. Now mm-hmm. you see this in Giambattista Vico. You see this in, um, you see this in Kant. You see this in like a lot of the enlightenment. You see this sense that I have to look to the past to find out who we are. Okay. That's thanks to Luther. But then the change happens with Hegel. Okay. Hegel is now going towards the future and towards progress. Um, for Hegel, he goes really weird and becomes almost a process theology in, so, in some ways. I mean, I'm not a huge Hegelian, so people might yell at me at this point, but just, you know, broad strokes. But the big guy actually is Marx, who is a student of Hegel's. For Marx, first, history, you can study it. This is not possible in Aristotle's view, but you can, st- and, and for Marx, you can study history. You can study how any alien, the dialectics playing out so you can know you can know what's going to come in the future and you can help escalate and, and rush the conclusion, if you will, of the dialectic to stop the, to stop the alienation of hit, that's experienced in history to create the new man. And so what you're now finding is that your identity is not found in the past. It's now something that's not there yet. And that has to be made and has to become and all sorts of other things around the notions of history. Okay. But, and, and even it gets really interesting when you read the enlightenment stuff, like the idea of the end of time becomes imminent. The kingdom of God is now this world, which comes to its perfection where nature is fully understood and lived without contradiction and conflict. Very enlightenment idea. They take these Christian notions and imminentize them. Okay. Yeah. So why am I saying all this? Because what's happened is the bond that makes history what it is. All these notions are modern, are actually Christian notions removed from the bond. That's Jesus Christ of the constant presence of the eternal with the temporal. And it starts to twist our notions of past and future. This gets, this gets us, sorry, I should shut up for a second. Do you have any questions or comments? My brain the 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 hamster wheel he is he is gasping he is <laughs> i know it's like I, a lot i, I forward no, no, everyone no, no, no it's good it's okay no 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 cuz i think i think i see where you're going with this i have some ideas of how this plays out right now in our uh cultural epoch yes um so just keep going okay <laughs> so what happens now through this kind of enlightenment immunitizing is the eternal becomes consumed in the temporal, okay? This gets into stuff around Blondell and metaphysics. I'm not going to go there. I want to kind of stay with the notion of history. Um, and it creates a real sense that now history is the battleground of eternity. So, for example, politics now is seen as a battle for God's kingdom. This is new. This was never understood by Christians for the first 1500 years. Uh, it only comes in the last 500 years, and especially I would say more intensified today. 
you yeah. see, as we said earlier, these notions of prophecy as if we can predict the day and the time, the end times. And if we study the scriptures enough, we can perfectly understand the coming of the end of time. We can even hasten it, right? So you see this mm -hmm. in some Protestant groups who are really keen on the um, national identity of Israel, for example, right? Why? Because yeah. they're trying to hasten the end of time. Um, you have notions that, or so in Catholic circles, as you mentioned earlier, you have Catholics who reject the past and only look to the future, mm -hmm. or who reject the future and present and only look to the past. In all of these, what you're seeing, and, I, and you might have some other ideas of where this is coming to play, and I think you will, um, but in all of this, you're seeing a divinization of, of um, temporal figures and players, which is rooted in a bad notion of history. And by doing so, we're not acting out of the Christological center because for, for, for Ratzinger in his Christology and his eschatology, Christ is yesterday, today, and forever. He's all, he's the eschaton, he's the eschaton. He's the thing through which things are created and he's the today. He's all those things at once. And by that, um, we start to actually live through a deeper peace where we recognize that Christ is the abiding presence of God's protection to us. And that even if we suffer in this life, even at the hands of evildoers, we're okay because we're with Christ. And we know that this isn't the last word, mm -hmm. but it's not our job to be players in these kind of imminent, 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 imminent uh, uh, or, um, political ploys or, or historical ploys to hasten things. These are all bad modern notions of history. And so in essence, what I'm trying to get at is that we actually have, I know this is kind of high theology in a sense, but it's a sign of a fundamental problem in formation. And actually I'll also say how we live as Christians we're not living out of what it, what it means to be human. We're not living out of what it means to be historical. <sighs> Sorry, I know, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, hmm. So, we talked about this a little bit, I think, uh, during some of our first pandemic episodes. Mm -hmm. When all this was happening, for the first time and now it seems like it's been happening forever but we were trying to discover what is god teaching us what is god revealing to us through this moment because christ is still in control god is still here present and so what can we discern from the signs of the times of what god is revealing to us and what is he doing in the world mm -hmm. right knowing that Ultimately, Christ has the victory, the victory that was inaugurated with the cross and resurrection. And understanding all of that. And in that, there can be, like, Christ does, you know, and, um, we see moments of Christ's eternal presence in history, sometimes through very specific revelations. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think you can see this in like uh, some of the like Our Lady of Guadalupe or maybe certain figures, certain saints mm -hmm. who are speaking specifically 
revealing to us the eternity of Christ in this historical moment. Is that mm-hmm. fair? Mm-hmm. Okay. What you see now, um, so you see in one sense, uh, I don't know how to do this without sounding political, so yeah. uh, whatever. It's, it's your podcast. You can do what you want. It is true. So you have a, a um, liberal progressive notion of this immunitizing. Uh, it's kind of this enlightenment idea we as well. Is that we can build the kingdom on earth. Hmm. If we only have these programs, if we only free people from these understandings of gender, if we free uh, mm-hmm. women from the need to have children through abortion, if we do this, we can actually make the world perfect now. Mm-hmm. What you're also seeing within the last, uh, more and more in the last few years, is on the far right, uh, this idea that if we don't fix history now, we'll be doomed. Mm-hmm. Even if there's a like a notion like that, because a lot of the conspiracy theories on the right still have some Christian flavors to it. So this idea that God's going to fix it, but lived out, there is a desperation to it. Mm-hmm. And there is a need for a historical strongman to fix everything. Um, this can get really extreme where they actually see Donald Trump as a messianic figure. Um, and this is, I mean, there are billboards of this. I you see them. this. Yeah. Uh, but even if there's not a billboard of it, even if you're not saying it explicitly, there's a lot of mm-hmm. implicit uh, belief that may be even hidden to that that person. Mm-hmm. This is what you see with a lot of the conspiracy theories, uh, QAnon stuff, mm-hmm. um, where we, like the, um, it's, it, it's weird because in the same way it is like we need to immunitize this perfect future, this perfect age now as well, mm-hmm. so that uh, Trump will come back into power, he will arrest and put to death all of the traitors, um, the economy will be fixed, everything will be revealed, and we'll be good now. Right. All of this is devoid, on the right and the left, of the understanding of Christ's presence in this world, and Christ being ultimately in control of history. Yep. And of, it's it's utterly, and that's what really I've been really into... <laughs> I don't want to say researching QAnon because people use the word research way too often and they don't understand what they mean. Going on Reddit and listening to podcasts is not right. research, but I've been learning more. Yep. And it's it's very much um, this idea that this is a battle between good and evil. It almost becomes a... Um, uh, oh, uh, what's the heresy? Good versus evil being equal forces. Manichaeism. Yes, thank you. Manichaeism that's infiltrated Christianity as well. Yeah. And so in all of this, on the right and the left, and a lot of people just kind of stuck somewhere in the middle, there's a feeling of desperation, of mm-hmm. chaos, of being unsure. And there's like a, you mentioned in the beginning. there's a deep pull to want to go one way or the other. Yes. To pick a side. Right. Because you want to, to go right you or want left to feel instead safe of in a group. Yes. So there's that. And this has been brought about because we do live in very weird and difficult yeah. times with technology, with wars, with violence, um, with uh, various ideologies that are fighting for the right to reign over the human person. And if you don't understand Christ's presence in history in all of this, you're gonna become a crazy person. Yes. So a few things with this. Um, One is, I think, this is the problem is like, we don't recognize that the battle between, like so, yeah, because of the imminentizing, history is now the battleground for the play between good and evil. Now, this is not this is the interesting thing in all this too is that it's not a complete it's not a it's not completely wrong. Right. But 
how do you understand how good and evil plays itself out in history? It's not yeah. through political parties and wars and cultural programs and all this stuff and, and, and lobbyists. And, and these are not the place of the spiritual war. It's actually only in one place, the eternal, the eternal son of God standing as though slain, right? Risen and slain at the same time. What he has happened in history is now eternal for the church to encounter and experience this in. And so the war between good and evil has been won in Christ. And so the question becomes, do you want to be part of that victory? And it's not through political means. It's actually through sharing in his mission, being sent as he is sent, which is through the cross. Exactly. This is to be lifted up with him. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is, and so, so to be Christian, means to live that pattern, to live Christ's way, truth, life. Um, and this means then that, and it's not to say that there's an absolute, I'm not saying like this is means that we, you know, remove ourselves totally from politics or anything like this. No, right? it's not a quietism. But it's, it's, yeah, it's not a quietism, but it's the sense that says this is actually the most important thing first, which means being a saint, dealing yes. with what's in front of you, not trying to build a future or not trying to root yourself in a past, but living in today. Today is the place like, um, Actually, Aristotle says this is really cool. Like this, the moment is kind of like a middle point of the past. Like it's a completion of what's of what's in the past, and it's a starting point of what's in the future. And so the presence, the moment is all that's real. The difference for us is that actually, because eternity is entered into time and lifted up time into eternity, every moment now is real, right? So this is what makes history reasonable for us now, because of eternity's touch with it, without overwhelming or destroying it. So there's a few things with this. It's first, like all these modern notions of Marxism and 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 uh, and um, all the different Enlightenment philosophies of history are actually rooted in the Christian tradition. And you, like Pieper, makes this argument really well. He says you cannot understand history, you can't do a philosophy of history without touch talking about theology, because history, as we know it today in the West, is a theological concept, not a philosophical one. Hmm. We don't, and, and he's right. He's absolutely right. But then, so this actually gets us to, so like first it's like, we got to stop seeing history in its, in its, in the various machinations it's playing itself out in right now as the, um, the warring out between heaven and hell. It is, but it's not in the way you think it is. Yeah. Your job is to be crucified with Christ so that you can be raised with him. Right. right, and so Ratzinger has a really cool little bit in here I want to share because it's also from that page from that from this book. So it's principles of Catholic theology, building stones for a fundamental theology. So he says this: um, wherever men escape from their daily confrontation with the saving and threatening powers of the cosmos and apprehend themselves as a community that meets the pressing needs of existence together and builds a sheltering and protective form of existence that perdures through generation. Their history as a form of salvation has its origin. The individual is no longer exposed alone to the abyss of his own existence, but sees himself as a, the member of a race, a nation, a culture that bestows directly upon him the form and direction of, his exist, of that existence that guarantees him safety, freedom, life, that are salvation. And he goes on to say that that's the church. And that's what we're supposed to be as a church yeah. is this place that saves from the, co the, the pressingness of the cosmos, from the abyss that we hang over as in isolation. So what's happening is because we're, everyone's feeling alienation today, alienation is like 
a big thing and it's why we see political division we're looking for a place to be safe and it, and it is it's like it's hard like i'll be honest like and i i, I literally I, I i i shoo politics so much because like i push it aside because it is actually it can be such a temptation to say i want a place to stand that isn't in christ mm-hmm. but everything that we've talked about here essentially this is the whole point there's only one place to stand it's in christ and his church and that we need to do this together and build up an authentic communion that lives that reality seriously and is willing to say because here's the thing the world may destroy us yeah it's done it before it'll do it again mm-hmm. but it or at least it'll destroy us in the earthly sense of the word but it won't destroy exactly. us because we are protected in christ which is found in his church guaranteed through the sacraments lived out in history history can be salvation and there's the second point to this though too is again it gets to something we said about i said a little bit last episode this also removes this kind of purely essentialist view of theology that as if history has nothing to say and it has no import into theology it actually does and for one simple reason god entered history in christ Therefore, history becomes a theological concept and notion, has to be taken seriously. And so it opens up the space for subjective and the objective to be in dialogue with each other rather than in opposition. Anytime we see subject, because you hear it, talking about feelings, um, particularities, um, anything like that, uh, um, uh, experience, subjectivity, all of that often is eschewed in in, in theology Mm -hmm. as too subjectivistic. But you can't destroy that because a subject entered into history and lifted up everything, yeah. all history into himself. So it says we have to take history as a concept, as a theological concept, seriously. And I'll just kind of stop. I think I'll stop here because I probably are probably almost out of time. Anyways, um, what, what then brings us about with this is it means um, that it, what I've been finding interesting all this is how little attention has been paid at least in the english-speaking world to ratzinger's theology of history and there's a lot here and it and we i I was actually planning to do this more as an eschatology episode but yeah it didn't go that way and that's fine but the ties are right there man like i can't wait to read his book on eschatology now because i've got the 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 blinders are off and i see clearly what he's trying to do and so it's Mm -hmm. gonna be interesting to see how he brings time and eternity into this conversation but I think we're just, we're not living as Catholics because we haven't, and we haven't allowed the church to be that safety net. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. This is, this is the, the weird, I don't know, project of our time that, and I don't want to open up a whole nother can of worms, but there are many people who are Catholic who feel alienated in the church yes, for various reasons. Absolutely. And you see many different Catholic groups, organizations, peoples trying to rediscover the Catholic thing and instead just inserting new kinds of modernism or old heresies or... And so... It, I'll just say that it's it's one thing I'm finding is that it's... It's difficult to recover a worldview that you were not raised in. Mm-hmm. This is why we have to do the work of, or, you know, uh, reading these things, understanding, you know, not, and I don't want to say like, 
And also that's, the, oh man, because people can get trapped in going back to previous sources and forget that the church is still living, is still doing the work of Christ, that we have to understand our place in it now as well. It's just, it's tricky. Mm-hmm. It is. So I guess if you feel very confused by the world and the church and all the bad stuff, that makes sense. Yeah. But the place we go to is Christ. And people are avoiding that because exactly. that means death to self. That means crucifixion. Exactly. We don't actually also, want what Christ brings. Right. And, because we don't know who Christ is. And, and it's like, listen, that's the truth for all of us. Because this is the thing. Yes. This is, at the heart of all this is an ignorance, an ignorance of the notion of original sin existing in history. Mm. When you lose that, you don't feel the need to be saved anymore. So, and I think what he's trying to do, he's trying to explore other ways to essentially talk about original sin without talking about it. So to try and find other ways to help people understand what salvation is, which I think is very interesting. Um, But this is the thing, like, I think this at the heart of this, it's like, I know this is heavy theology stuff and, and trust me, it gets headier. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But what I'm trying to get at with all this is if you accept Christ and his church, even with all her imperfections, because guess what? He never said it was she was perfect anyways. She's had bad popes, bad bishops, bad priests, bad lady. We've, we've had them all. Yeah. We've had them all. And we will have them all to the end of days. By the mm-hmm. way, they're here forever. Um, he's promised us this, so we need to listen to that. Stop worrying about that stuff. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter. He said it's going to be there. You can't change it. Now, I'm not saying like, a, again, I'm not saying a pacifism, but like if it's your state in life, like you're a family at home and you're worried about every little word the Pope's saying or every little document that's coming out of Rome, stop it. It's not going to do you any good because you can't control that. Why are you worrying? Deal with what is it? Deal with what's in front of you. That's your job in the church. The same with me. I can't, I don't worry about most stuff that happens in a lot in the universal church much because... It doesn't affect me on the ground. So why bother? Why, like, why waste my energy? Hmm. My job is to build up communion. And I think this is the other thing. It's like it actually teaches us like a really holy abandon in some ways to faithfulness. Because that's the thing. When people experience faithfulness, it's going to draw them to be faithful. As well. And that's where the communion builds. And that's where the, the church is a safety net starts to happen in a really beautiful way. So for me, it's like, I think, and we talked about this a few episodes ago, like my job is simple now as a pastor be a faithful priest, to be faithful to the duties as they're put in front of me, no more and no less. And that Mm -hmm. if I do that and show people what it means to be faithful to Christ, Christ will do the work to draw them to him. Mm -hmm. And you're falling asleep. I should have had coffee before this one. <laughs> I, listen, I warned you. I warned you. You did. You did. But it's good. We haven't had an episode like this in a while. And I, 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 I my brain will be, will be churning these ideas around. I hope it makes around. sense, folks. Like, yeah. So again, like just quickly, like it's part of this the ADHD. It's like I have like thirty ideas swirling in my head when I'm talking about this, and so it's like Harrison, never apologize for an episode. I know all of our episodes are excellent, I know, but it's just. I'm not saying it's not excellent. I'm just saying it's excellent in my weakness. Um, <laughs> Beautiful. Um, it's just that sometimes I have all these ideas that are swirling around. And it's hard. It is hard to. It's why it's hard for me to write because I'm like, okay, how do I how do I get this into something manageable mm-hmm. when it seems like these ten words don't encapsulate everything that's going on up here in my brain. Mm-hmm. So if it sounded a little disjointed, that happens with me. But it's also an opportunity for me to start working out what I'm trying to say, and it's good because actually at least how, how I felt. I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of the direction I'm going to go a little bit with my second chapter. I'm getting a handle on this. I didn't look at my notes at all. 
My note. That's, uh, that's my notebook. Very my impressive. Notebook right, <laughs> that's my notebook right there, and I didn't even touch it. So I would have liked your notes. You should have sent them over here. <laughs> you, you wouldn't be able to read my writing. That's also true. You have chicken scratch. All right. Well, thanks so much to everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. Um, I don't. Have, do, you, do you have the script in front of you? I don't have the script. I can do it. You can do it. I can do it. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me trying to get seven flawless wins in the trials of Osiris. You can find me on Twitter at FR Harrison. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. If you'd like to support what we do, check out our Patreon. Money goes to equipment to pay our producers to do stuff. We get no money. Any extra money goes to the Daughters of St. Paul. Peace. God bless.